All right, peeps. This week, I have my boy genius Ryan Nakade on the pod to share how he discovered the work of Michael Brooks through the integral movement and some of his own political theorizing behind the scenes to his podcast entitled Meta Ideological Politics with his good friend Nate Kaufman. Some of the many topics that we touch upon are postmodern conservatism, as found in the work of Matt McManus, the future of religion and politics in North America, the growing gender polarization at the heart of the culture wars, and various new online digital communities and alternative media ecosystems. Like always, I hope you enjoy the conversation and make sure to check out the show notes. Sweet. All right, bud. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, I've been wanting to do this for a while. I mean, obviously, the conversation with Jeremy and Matt and uh, with Ben Burgess, I mean, it's been really helpful for me to go out and reflect back on my own sort of integral journey and how I came to go and discover Michael Brooks' work. Um, so I want to circle back to you because we've been having a lot of conversations back and forth on Discord and across various different mediums. And uh, so I just want to go and open it up and just kind of get you to, to, to I guess, re-narrate, I guess, your story in terms of how you came to Michael Brooks' uh the first time around in terms of his work and I guess it's relationship to integral theory as well. So let's just go and start there. I mean, when did you, Michael first come on your radar? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks Eric. It's great to be here. And and I love uh, talking to you on discord and online. And so it's always a lot of fun and brings me a lot of joy. So it's nice to have a a live conversation and uh, I'm a big fan of yours and all of the guests that you've had on. So uh, I'm really happy to be here. You know, it's interesting with Michael because I became aware of him maybe in like 2017, 2018, uh, just because I was following a lot of online leftists and leftist YouTubers. And so naturally he popped up from the YouTube uh, algorithm. And the first time I saw him, he was doing a lot of attacking of the IDW guys, particularly Dave Rubin. He kind of became famous for dunking on Dave Rubin. Uh, and in a very humorous, acerbic way. So I thought that was kind of entertaining, but didn't think much more of his his overall work and you know what everything that he was saying. I had no idea that he was associated with integral theory uh, or spirituality or Buddhism or any of these interesting things that we're into in any way. Right? I just thought he was just another kind of standard leftist political commentator on YouTube. And then in 2019, I met Jeremy Johnson. Uh, And we became buddies and started talking. Um, And Jeremy, I I was looking at Jeremy's Mutations podcast and was like, no, he interviewed Michael Brooks. It was like my mind was blown, like two worlds colliding, you know. Uh, It was like the integral spiritual Gebser, you know, liminal whatever scene kind of colliding with the mainstream leftist online YouTube scene. I was like, I was just like, my mind was blown. Yeah. And so I asked Jeremy. Just like I was me. Like, I mean, that's very similar to my story as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And and I listened to it. I was like, oh my God, Michael Brooks, like the, the socialist, uh, you know, Bernie supporter. This guy's into like Gebser and consciousness and Buddhism. Like what the, I was, yeah, I couldn't believe it. So um, I, after figuring that out, I, I then perceived Michael and his work in an entirely new light. I then started watching everything that he talked about, obviously. Right. Um, and, and, you know, before he passed away, uh, a lot of his content was becoming more explicitly integral. And he was mentioning, like, check out Jeremy Johnson and Brent Cooper and Michelle Bowens. And, you know, that was really cool. And I was really looking forward to 
uh, his show going more in that direction. And of, of course, very tragically, he just passed away at a young age, very suddenly, very abruptly. So yeah, that's kind of my, my background with Michael. Cool. Because that's really similar to me as well. I mean, well, because I was just shell-shocked, you know, once I, I saw Jeremy on his show talking about Gepser. Um, so I had right. no idea that, that there was this connection, you know, uh, I mean, because Michael really was, he really is, I mean, he, you know, far out on the left and he's very active in terms of the whole socialist theme uh, and, you know, in some big outlets as well. I mean, his connection to Jacobin, the majority report. Um, and that's not, a, I guess, a, a media ecosystem that I was that just not paying attention to it just as much, I mean, as some mm-hmm. other people. Um, I mean, that has to go and do as well, I guess, because I'm up in Montreal and obviously in terms of, you know, I can't go out and follow everything that's going on in terms of the States, in terms of news there and stuff like that. But once I saw Jeremy on there and I saw that the Gepser connection and how he was informed, integrally informed in terms of how he was going out and unpacking the whole kind of his whole discourse around the, the, the left and what he was framing sort of as I'm what I'm starting to go and call as a next left. I was floored. So that's when I reached out to Jeremy. And then obviously I got pulled into your whole world in terms of <laughs> the discord and some of the more sort of uh, online um, integral movement, which I was not following that closely since the kind of the uh, integral naked days and when integral naked kind of became integral life, I got really turned off at that point and I just kind of tuned out or stopped following a lot of the stuff that was going on online. So when I got pulled into Jeremy's discord and obviously uh, the, uh, the other uh, integral discord as well uh, that you guys were kind of, you know, using as a, you know, as a sounding board for yourselves and obviously how you guys are involved online through Facebook um, I was just like, oh my God, there is this whole other online world that I just haven't been following very closely. Um, so, you know, you you and Jeremy, I mean, I have so much to go and thank you for, for going out and exposing to me like a whole other kind of subculture that's been ongoing since, uh, you know, Integral Naked became Integral Life. Um, so I guess, I guess that's the other question too that I have for you is that, you know, like how far or because, you know, with Jeremy, Jeremy, you know, is kind of goes far back within the integral movement as well. So when did Wilbur and the whole integral movement kind of really come on for you and it started to have a big, big impact for you personally? Yeah, I was 17 years old and living in Hawaii. I grew up on a big island and I was a high school dropout. So I homeschooled, even though I wasn't really doing any schooling. And my mom is a Buddhist minister. She's a Zen minister. And so uh, do you know the Sounds True? Uh, yeah, yeah like, for sure, yeah. So she was a big fan of Sounds True and would order a bunch of like books and audio tapes and stuff from them. And she got one on, on Wilbur randomly because it looked interesting. I think it was, um, what was it called? Uh, Brief History of Everything, the audio book. Okay, cool. And we put it on in the car when I was 15 years old and driving around and we were like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Talking about like holons and quadrants and like cosmic evolution. Like we just like tuned it out. But then when I was 17 and I was kind of going through my own spiritual awakening slash spiritual crisis, uh, I, I somehow remembered him and, and felt like there was something there and started reading his earlier works like Atman Project and Up From Eden and No Boundary and so forth. Uh, and, and it was really helpful for me psychologically and spiritually to kind of get my path established and understand these very important distinctions he was making 
uh, that probably earned him the label of like the Einstein of consciousness, you know? And so I wasn't into politics or social theory back then. I just was trying to navigate some uh, mental health and spiritual crisis issues. And his work was instrumental in helping me to get to uh, heal and evolve and, and get beyond those, those problems. Um, then I kind of went to like a spiritual college and, that'll you know really engage in like eastern philosophy and spirituality and yoga and meditation and kind of put the wilbur and integral stuff on the side and i ended up coming back to it it was always kind of in the back of my mind but i, I ended up coming back to it in about um 2014 2015 um i first found wilbur i should say when I, in, in like 2009 so 2014 2015 it started coming back on my radar and then in 2016, when Trump won, I read his Trump in the post-truth world and then really got back into integral theory from 2016 to like 2019. Gotcha. And uh, that's when I met Jeremy and then you and then the rest is history. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, because I, I wasn't too sure in terms of your own evolution through that as well. I mean, it, it, Wilbur is pretty much the same thing for me. I mean, Wilbur came online when I was 16, 17 through family as well. I, I mean, through my dad. Uh, and the first book that I actually read of his as well was A Brief History of Everything. Mm. And uh, I mean, it just blew me open, you know, as somebody that was just starting to go out and, uh, you know, get a little more interested, obviously, in current events and obviously the whole stuff around uh, philosophy. I mean, he just opened up the whole world of philosophy and psychology to me in a whole new way that um, – I mean, without him, I, I mean, I don't know where I would be today. I mean, because school, you know, when I was in high school, it wasn't like, obviously, I did okay in school. Uh, you know, I was involved in sports and extracurricular activities, but school was never really kind of, I was more of a jock <laughs> than uh, of course you were. <laughs> a, a sort of uh, intellectual. So, I mean, but coming across his work, I mean, he just opened me up intellectually. Right. And I mean, it was great because I had a, you know, I was able to go and talk to my dad about that. I mean, my dad's background is actually in counseling psychology and physical education. So once, even when he came across Wilbur's work, I mean, it really opened up even for him, his own personal world for his ongoing kind of personal education and development and stuff like that. Uh, so that's, you know, it's been an ongoing sort of personal journey, even within my family and kind of like you as well. I mean, like another big aspect of Wilbur's work was the existential spiritual dimension to that. Um, and, you know, like I lost my brother, you know, to leukemia at a very young age and it was a big sort of formative experience for me uh, growing up and obviously for, you know, the impact on our whole family. And Wilbur was there in a certain way to go out and for us to go out and existentially and spiritually sort of unpack that obviously event of losing my brother, but also to go out and make sense of our, our horrible relationship to religion. <laughs> Growing up in Quebec, I mean, we're, you know, like the whole kind of Catholic environment. So he opened us up to obviously Eastern spirituality, uh, Buddhism. So that whole avenue and how it fit into uh, to psychology. Um, so, I mean, and that's pretty interesting thing too, because there's a lot of people out there that you know discovered Wilbur in their you know their late teens, early twenties, and it's been a real formative sort of uh, uh, teacher for them moving into their you know to to young adulthood and eventually you know to adulthood, and that's the cool thing about Michael as well, right? Which um, talking to Jeremy and even talking to Ben and obviously talking to Matt, um, that's a dimension to Michael's kind of 
uh, personal journey that they're not that aware of. They, you know, like he really came online for them much more, I guess, were on the political seat, uh, the political stuff. Um, so I guess that's kind of the other thing too, because even when I was talking to Jeremy is that, you know, like Wilbur had a big formative experience on us personally growing up, but politically as well, like our own political journeys in terms of discovering, I guess, where we would fit on the political spectrum is an interesting one as well. So for you, I guess, when did you kind of come online politically, you know, in terms of uh, its relationship, your relationship to integral theory and to political theory and your interest in political science more broadly? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I'd I'd be curious uh, in your answer on this too, right? So little personal story, I actually was totally apolitical uh, for much of my, um, uh, like, like in like my teens and early twenties, I was only into spirituality and consciousness or right. Or what Wilbur would call like the upper left quadrant. Uh, and I remember just, this is how bad it was, Eric. I remember I came back from California and Oregon, went back to Hawaii where, and I was voting in some kind of like local election. And I asked my dad at the age of 22 years old, dad, what is the difference between a Democrat and a Republican and which one should I vote for? <laughs> Right. This is 20, 22 years old. Right. Uh, so the, I was way, way behind. I didn't know what the difference was between a liberal and a conservative or any of these things. So uh, I started reading a lot of books. And naturally, in 2014, you know, the closest, the most recent presidential election was the 2012 election between Obama and Romney. So I went back and watched all of the Republican debates uh, leading up to Romney become, becoming the Republican nominee, right? So it was like Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum and Ron Paul and Romney. Um, and I actually became uh, a big Ron Paul libertarian guy for a while. Okay. And <laughs> it was really funny because I went to Estonia and was working on alternative school and some of the reporters uh, interviewed me for a magazine and they were asking me about politics and education, giving like the American perspective. And I'm so embarrassed looking back. Every single one of my answers was just a straight up libertarian, borderline anarcho-capitalist <laughs> answer of like, well, just get the government out of everything and privatize and deregulate, put market mechanisms to work, you know, enable competitive dynamics and everything will just work out. And like, that was like literally my, my kind of a, a scripted kind of answer um, for any political issue. And then in 2015, I, I got another job in Hawaii, and all of my coworkers were huge fans of Bernie Sanders. And basically, uh, I did a 180 and went from a, being a Ron Paul libertarian to being a Bernie Sanders, huge Bernie Sanders fanatic, and totally turned into you know, a Bernie bro like overnight. <laughs> total Bernie bro overnight, you know, total progressive, started reading all the progressive leftist books, you know, anti capitalist critique and. Uh, you know, advocating for things like universal health care and that kind of stuff. Um, so, so that was kind of what I was going through at the time. But and that was before course, Peterson came online, though, if I understand correctly. It was. It, it was. was. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So you'd become a Bernie bro at that point, even before coming across Michael's work and stuff like that. Yes. Okay, yes. gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I was always trying to commensurate that, that real, um, you know, uh, strong progressive political instinct with integral theory and kind of wondering – you know, like what stage is this? What quadrant is this, right? Like what is, how does this reflect what I'm going through internally and developmentally uh, with my changing political leanings and so forth, right? And I kind of had a a dual, um, like a real love of integral and also like a real dissatisfaction with integral in in regards to politics, right? So the thing that I really appreciate, I will be eternally grateful to, to Wilbur and integral theory for really kind of infusing into me this attitude of, 
like multi-perspectivity and multi-dimensionality and taking all of the, the you know the whole the whole political spectrum into consideration and, and really considering all the stakeholders, all of the values, all of the needs, all of the arguments. Um, and everyone has a piece of the truth, right? It's important to take all these perspectives, even contradicting perspectives into consideration to try to grok the whole picture uh, in the most holistic and comprehensive way possible, right? So that was something that the spirit of that, um, I'm really grateful that Wilbur kind of taught me that, right? The thing that I don't like about Integral, uh, and I'd be curious about your take on this too, Eric, right? In terms of like the um, Wilbur and the kind of mainstream Integral life institutions of integral like their politics didn't seem very coherent right there was a lot of like what i would call color reductionism or trying to explain complex political phenomena only through like a spiral dynamics lens um i didn't really feel like there was enough lower right quadrant structural and systemic literacy that was brought into the analysis uh, that's something that michael really provided right uh really emphasizing material analysis uh marxism cosmopolitan socialism and so forth right he wasn't just reducing everything to developmental stages or colors. Um, and I, I, so I felt very dissatisfied with the analysis and political sense-making from, you know, like Jeff Salzman and, and all of these kind of uh, integral life figures um, and, and luminaries in, in that community. So I, I, don't, I don't know, I, it was kind of like, I, I appreciate the, the spirit of integral and in, in really grokking diverse perspectives to overcome political polarization and move society towards a more integrative and, and holistic state. But at the same time, I was very dissatisfied with uh, the narrative leadership of um, the mainstream integral community and was looking for alternatives. And that's where I met Jeremy and you and uh, kind of developing you know, our voice in this whole um, ecosystem. No, definitely. Well, I mean, even for me, I mean, like, as Jeremy seems obviously around Occupy, he got pulled in way more to the left than I would ever go and consider myself to be. Right, right. <laughs> I never considered myself a leftist or even a socialist. Uh, personally, at any point growing up, I've always, you know, like in Quebec, because, you know, I grew up in a very liberal sort of liberal Trudeau family sort of orientation politically. And I guess the liberal worldview in Quebec and in particularly French speaking uh, as, uh, side of Canada is much more, I guess, democratically, well, they're social Democrats in a certain way. And I mean, this is the funny thing about the Trudeau family, whether it be Justin Trudeau or Pierre Trudeau. Um, I mean, they're very difficult to go and pin down politically in terms of where they fit on the political spectrum. And for myself, I mean, I've just naturally kind of grew into that uh, in terms of, you know, my family growing up, that was just the political worldview that we held. And so growing in, even to, I guess, discovering Wilbur's work and getting much more interested in humanistic and transpersonal psychology, you know, and it, it just fits naturally, I guess, within that sort of progressive worldview, right? I mean, it's not necessarily against liberalism, but it's not really hardcore neoliberalism in a certain way. Um, it's, it's strange. I mean, integral theory, when I think about its kind of trajectory in terms of as a social movement, even politically, I mean, it's very difficult to go and pin it down. Um, so, but I got very turned off right around that time when, um, the, the integral Institute and integral naked became integral life. And they started to adopt that whole sort of conscious capitalism sort of worldview. And the reason I, why I got turned off that is, is just because 
uh, I was in the corporate world. You know, I was working mm. for Dell Computer Corporation. I was working for a, a whole slew of other corporations in Canada, mostly all within the IT environment uh, and the IT industry and telecommunication industry. And I was just seeing how it was it was deadly. I mean, there was no way in hell, you know, unless you were just there to go out and make money, but to actually go out and grow and develop as a person or to go out and set down some roots uh, to go and either, you know, for me personally, to go out and have a family or just to go out and have some sort of livelihood and find some sort of, you know, work-life balance, it was impossible. So, you know, and there were people, I guess, within that particular environment that were moving progressive ideas in terms of, you know, like democracy in the workplace. Let's go out and mm-hmm. develop sort of uh, more progressive thinking in terms of how we can go out and adopt technology or use technology to go out and make the the, 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 the workplace more uh, balanced, right? I mean, within human relations or even in terms of human resources, I mean, there are progressive wings to it, but I mean, it's so difficult to for it not to go and get co-opted by the more sort of neoliberal, uh, you know, capitalist dimension to it. Um, and I was, you know, kind of having gone out and interfaced a bit, I guess, in terms of within that corporate world and where it intermet, you know, met, um, I guess, the, the labor movement in Quebec, uh, where I saw so much corruption. There was just so, I mean, Quebec is one of the most unionized sort of environments politically, uh, particularly within the uh, the public sector, but even within other industries as well. I mean, Quebec is by far the most unionized uh, uh, province in all of Canada, I would go and say. So there is that very strong, tight-knit community on, the, uh, on that side that's gone way much more to the left in a certain way compared to all the other provinces in, in Canada. But that was an environment that I just never felt that comfortable in. So... When that was all going on, and obviously, I mean, the 2008 financial crash, and then obviously Occupy, uh, when I was, you know, looking at the integral movement, trying to go make sense of it, there was just nothing in there. So very much like Jeremy, I was just like, what the hell is going on? Like, nothing is going on. Um, And if I would have discovered Michael at that point, I mean, I think that that would have been, you know, uh, so helpful for me to go and make sense of that whole period from 2008 all the way up to the, you know, currently from a political dimension. So very much kind of like you, I mean, I think this is why I've enjoyed (laughs) interacting with you online and some of the stuff through the Discord is that it's really helped me to go and make sense of, you know, like the whole political spectrum, right? And where do I fit into that? And where do my own personal values actually fall politically, right? And this is, I guess, the interesting thing, uh, uh, you know, that I want to go and pick your brains about is that because through your own podcast now is that you're so you're somewhat agnostic in terms of where you fall on the political spectrum, you seem to be much more uh, willing to go out and move from the right and to the left and to go out and try and navigate to see what's most skillful in the immediate moment. So I guess that's kind of like, I want to go out and pick your brains now is that, do you feel like where, where do you personally feel your political allegiance? Uh, uh, I guess, you know, where do you feel you fall on the political spectrum? And do you feel that you even have a political s- tribe at this point right now where you are? you know, kind of in, in, in your own life right now and even just kind of looking at the political landscape out there. 
Yeah, this is this is an excellent, really excellent question. Um, so my answer to this is this. If the average American asked me, Ryan, where do you fall on the political spectrum? It would be intellectually dishonest for me to, to give any other answer than I'm on the left in terms okay. of policy <laughs> positions that I hold, right? Yeah. Like if I were to say, oh, I'm a you know meta-integrative, Chad-centric, whatever, like, okay, but like I basically like I would be seen as a liar. Like, well, do you support uh, this? Do you support that? Do you support universal health care? Do you support UBI? Do you support stronger unions? Do you support uh, climate action? Do you support blah, blah, blah? Uh, I would just say yes to like almost all of those things, at least in some way. And so for me to say that I'm somehow like, you know, beyond it or above it or or not on the spectrum, I think would would kind of on an interpersonal level be seen as being dishonest or, or not being like really transparent about my actual political and ideological leanings. I think in terms of how I subjectively identify, I don't identify really as being on the left. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of conservative, um, you know, right-leaning perspectives or insights I also embrace. But I think the difference with conservatives these days is that I don't embrace them exclusively, right? I don't embrace those ideas at the exclusion of left ideas. I try to hold both of them, maybe in different ways and in different contexts and to different degrees and emphasis. But I'm I'm not excluding any ideologies or, or perspectives or ideas and, and try to kind of weave them together. And then through that, talk to people on their own terms, uh, using their own ideological frameworks that they're comfortable with and the language that they're used to talking with, right? Um, and that's a way for me to, to practice depolarization and to build bridges and to uh, engage with people of diverse political and ideological backgrounds. So in that sense, I can see how it, like optically or aesthetically, I, I kind of look like I'm, I'm agnostic or I might not really have a tribe, so to speak, uh, and I don't feel like I do. I feel like I get a little bit of something out of every group, but I don't feel like a, a overwhelming sense of identification with one group. I kind of distribute my group identifications all over, right? Like, you know, you and I talk about like, you know, there are traditional conservative Christian groups I like talking to and interacting with and really getting into theology and uh, virtue ethics and, and religious questions in ways I can't with uh, friends who are really into social justice activism and, and DEI and so forth, right? And mm -hmm. all of my my needs and interests are, are never met by one group or tribe. So I have to have a lot and I get a little bit of something from all of them, but never all of them in one of them. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that was kind of the, the funny thing for me. I mean, Jeremy, obviously, I mean, because of his background in integral theory, um, you know, the conversations I've had with him and even, I guess, some people through the Discord is that it's much more fluid in terms of an understanding to be able to go and swim across the whole political spectrum, right, from the far right all the way up to, you know, the far left and try and go out and make sense of it. And through integral theory, I mean, obviously, we can go out and talk about it developmentally in a certain way, uh, whether I agree with that or not. But that's that's why, I mean, you know, on the disc, you know, I wouldn't even laugh because, you know, like, at times I felt bad for Jeremy because I mean, obviously he's much more progressive and much more to the left, you know, than I am. And at times I'm feeling like, well, you know, like I need to go out and post this stuff from, you know, the, the postmodern right or the stuff around McManus's work or even some stuff around, you know, the uh, Catholic integralists since I have a personal interest in that. Uh, but at times, you know, like I feel stuck as well, right. That people don't want to go out and talk about the full political spectrum like when I was talking to Ben Burgess and even to Matt, like, I, I mean, I felt myself kind of like at times going out and being like, well, 
You know, like I don't think I, I, I could openly go out and press them in a certain way, or I can in a way to think that, you know, like, and I did with Matt in a certain way to think that, you know, the, the, the new right or the postmodern conservatives, the way he's framing it might be an appropriate sort of developmental or even uh, having a historical moment that might be beneficial for us moving forward. And at times when I was talking to Ben or even when I talked to, to Matt, at times like they view it like 100% negatively. And I have right. a tough time wrapping my head around that, seeing that, you know, there can't be any good coming out of it. Like I don't, you know, think Jordan Peterson's arguments, uh, you know, theologically or psychologically or that's particularly sophisticated mm -hmm. uh, and politically either, right? But obviously he's hit a chord for people to go out and unpack some stuff. Absolutely. Um, so to me, like, that's an interesting question. I've always like, you know, when I've interacted with you, I've always felt like we've been able to go out and wrestle with the full political spectrum and start to go out and really wrestle, you know, like one, is it, you know, is, is this some sort of character trait that people have, or is it some sort of thing that people can go out and inhabit for a certain time? Uh, right, and use that developmentally as some, some sort of capacity that people can go and inhabit to go and achieve some sort of, uh, you know, skillful uh, or upaya, a skillful means in the world, right? So I guess this is my question to you, I guess, in, in terms of your, your podcast that you're doing right now. Um, do you view the sort of meta-ideological sort of framework that you're developing um, as a map? that people can use or is it really to go out and just go out and uh, I guess, you know, if, is it just really just a map that people can go out and reference or is it something that people can go out and enact all across the political spectrum? Like how, how are you making sense of that currently right now in terms of your own political understanding of, you know, the, the full political spectrum that you're talking about here? Oh yeah, this is great. This is, there's so much to say about this. Uh, but one thing I'll mention just to tie back into Michael was I think this is something that Michael uh, really did a beautiful job advocating for, even if in my view, he didn't always like live it, you know, it, like he was very much for this uh, practically and philosophically of really understanding, like let, let's say Jordan Peterson as an example of it, like why there's so much demand for his product, right? Mm -hmm. We may disagree yeah. with the content, uh, but we need to have, especially, you know, he was advocating for the left to really understand what's really driving the right, right? And what kind of insights, what kind of talking points uh, is, uh, is the right hitting on that is able to attract so many people, especially particular demographic groups, right? Like the kind of stereotype Peterson fan of like the young kind of incel-esque white male who feels alienated, right? Um, and wants some sense of meaning and re-enchantment and personal empowerment. And how can some of these ideas be integrated into leftist politics for truly holistic politics where we can subsume of uh, voters or people who are against uh, progressive ideas by speaking directly to their needs that are not being left I'm sorry, not being met on the left, right? Mm, so he did yeah. a really good job of advocating for that. I think for myself, um, yeah, I think with meta-ideological politics, basically the idea is to shift from looking at specific issues to looking at the frames that we use, the ideological frames, the analytic frames um, that kind of constrain or structure 
our uh, political perceptions and political sense-making that, and that also inform prescriptively the policies that we're for that we think will make society better, right? And so I look at a lot of these different frameworks and I'm really grateful to have met you and been interacting with you, Eric, and, and you introducing me to the whole gamut of the new right, of the kind of Catholic theological post-liberal school, right, with Ramil and Amari and Patrick Deneen and R.R. Reno. And I've read all of these books and have been metabolizing their insights and perspectives. And I probably literally disagree with almost everything they say, but thematically and abstractly, I see a lot of value in what they're saying. And it's given me an understanding of kind of the rise of the new right and what that kind of re reactionary backlash uh, is against, right? So I understand the critique. I understand the affirmative vision that they're promoting in their works. Um, and, and basically the idea for me is to go out to embrace the insights non-exclusively of the entire political spectrum. And my colleague, Nate Kaufman, who's a Republican conservative, he calls this Chad centrism instead of virgin centrism, right? So, <laughs> so on, cool. the, on the political spectrum, right? The, the virgin centrist, so to speak, occupies a center point at the exclusion of what it sees as the extremes. Uh, so the, the virgin centrist says, I'm a moderate, you know, uh, kind of a, a centrist in the middle, and I'm not gonna embrace anything else except for my little slice of the spectrum. The Chad centrist says, I can embrace the entire spectrum all at once in a really large kind of mandalic embrace and steel man all of the perspectives and, and get some value or signal or insight from them. And if nothing else, get a better understanding of why people are drawn to those ideas. And then, and then more power to you, right? You can talk to people from all over, right? You mentioned Upaya or the Buddhist word for skillful means, right? Skillful communications. You can build relationships with diverse ideological communities that are normally at each other's throats, right? Um, you, can, you can translate your ideas and make more effective arguments by reframing the ideas and policies and values that you support in their language and on their own ideological terms. Right. So, so my, my biggest value is talking to people on their own terms. And in doing so, it shows a kind of respect and a kind of solidarity in that I can um, relate to you through the frameworks that are meaningful to you. I'm not going to try to impose my beliefs onto you and expect you to conform to them. Right. And over time, I think that will help to make society more coherent and less polarized and divisive. Um, so meta-ideological politics, I framed it in the more normie language as a way of combating polarization. I wouldn't say necessarily that it's a map, like in the Wilburian sense of like a map. It's, it's, I call it a non-systematized pluralistic pragmatism. Gotcha. Right. And so I'd, I'd say it's more of an attitude or a disposition or a sensibility uh, to non-exclusively embrace the insights from many ideologies and political schools of thought to grok reality and its wholeness and complexity, to build relationships with uh, diverging political tribes, and to revalorize civic engagement and, and basically give a tonic to civil society so that society doesn't just disintegrate with polarization and fragmentation. Oh, I love it. No, for sure. Yeah. No, and I mean that's even something that I'm not seeing at times. Well, particularly, I mean, since you're we're circle back around to Michael, without mm -hmm. Michael. You know, and and the the I guess the the space the you know and the discourse that he was bringing not only on the left but how he was actually talking about the new right or postmodern conservatives 
uh, the way McManus is going out and framing. Because to me, Matt and even uh, Ben, I mean, they're very good, obviously, at, uh, you know, identifying the threat, <laughs> if you can go out and say that. Like, there is this holy crap, there's, there's this thing out on the right, right? There is this new right. There is this Peterson phenomenon. There is the Patrick Deneens of the world that are advocating this sort of, you know, that are embracing, you know, Christianity in a whole new way and bringing, bridging it into politics that is that is gaining force right so that the left needs to go out and somehow address that and sharpen its tools and sharpen its discourse to go out and you know take it on and to me i see it as a as a, a worthy challenge right all of a sudden people that are on the left obviously i think should start to feel that you know we have some sort of worthy opponent <laughs> and that to me is where i saw the sort of you know shining light in in Michael's eyes is that, you know, like he was like, oh, this is nice. Like, finally, I get to go out and really spar now with what's going on politically on the right, right? This is something that I've seen. This is something that I want to go out and wrestle with. Let's go out and duke this out. And Ben Burgess, to me, I mean, obviously, he's he's very skillful and he's very uh, knowledgeable, but he doesn't have that sort of integral background and that sort of philosophy or kind of cosmopolitan sort of orientation that Michael had. Mm -hmm. So without him there, um, you know, like I, like, I mean, one of the main reasons why I wanted to go and launch this, this pod is to keep that conversation going. Right. Because without the kind of integral components informing the left in a certain way and sort of massaging and starting to go and develop that sort of discourse the way you guys, you know, you and Jeremy and you guys have been posting online in terms of the idea of the integral left, right? If there is this new left that is emerging, that is more integrally informed, right? That is adopting a sort of more meta meta ideological sort of framework and is capable of going out and handling, you know, all these various perspectives then, you know, we need to keep on pushing that and keep, you know, like advocating and obviously practicing that sort of, of discourse, not only within ourselves, but start to go and bring it into the public sphere. And, you know, that, that's why I was so happy that obviously Matt came on and that Ben came on and obviously you and now Jeremy and so that we can go and start to hash that out. Because I feel that at times the, the history is somewhat being lost, right? I mean, there's so much there that happened between you know the early 2000s all the way up till till now that is going out and informing kind of what's going on politically but also theoretically and philosophically right there's just there's just so much going on right now um so that's one of the main reasons why i want to go and have you on and 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 uh, you know obviously hash this out um but i guess this is the other thing too is like when you view the new right or postmodern conservatives today uh do you think that the left is equipped to go out and deal with it right now the way it, it's it's kind of organizing itself and it's sort of you know positioned itself currently where where do you think we are in this sort of fight or this sort of political discourse across you know whether it be just at the, at the postmodern level in terms of trying to go out and develop some sort of new discourse do you feel that the right is more powerful has the upper hand or is it currently the left like how where where where, where do you kind of feel things are currently right now yeah yeah it's a, it's an interesting question to consider because um, i lead depolarization workshops and trainings part of my job as a mediator and facilitator and what i do professionally and one of my favorite questions i ask people is right is like who do you think has the power in society right and how do we tell what is our method of gauging who has more power and in what ways and i think 
the 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 left right it, it, it gets complicated because everyone has a different perspective of what's going on right so for the right they think that basically all, all of society or at least all of you know north america is completely institutionally dominated and captured by the left right that kind of woke sjw dei agenda has uh infiltrated and contaminated every institution from uh, education and academia, and even now with CRT in schools, to um, the media, obviously, right, to big tech, right, like woke capitalism writ large is kind of like public enemy number one in the eyes of the new right. And so they see the left as having all of the power and kind of a monopoly on the narrative, right? Kind of a Gramsci-esque cultural hegemony critique. The left, I think the social justice left still very much sees what they would call the right as being the dominant force, right? It's this neoliberal capitalist <laughs> uh, society with an inordinate amount of in income you know, inequality in America where the top 1% and the Bezoses and the Musks of the world really uh, run everything um, through the power of, of global capital and private ownership and industry, um, and that the mainstream corporate media narrative is very much biased towards the dominant neoliberal regime. Uh, government is absolutely, you know, um, hijacked by uh, lobbyists and private players uh, who have rigged the game in their favor. Right, this is kind of classic Bernie narrative, right? Corruption, money, and politics, etc. And that mainstream, you know, culturally, we we definitely have uh, very problematic cultural developments on the right, whether it be the Trumpism or QAnon or uh, the Proud Boys or the alt-right, right, or the internet, right, which I think the postmodern conservative movement is largely a product of the internet, a child of the internet, basically, right? That's what makes postmodern conservatism different from, let's say, traditional conservatism, right? The postmodern conservative gains its identity, its constellations of memes and uh, tropes and values and identities in a kind of pastiche um, uh, gestalt, right, from all of the, these internet uh, sources, right, and are kind of born through these, you know, forums like Reddit and 4chan and um, it kind of coheres in a new way that makes it very distinct from traditional conservatives who gather their identity from traditions, from their local community, from grounded, embodied Cultural or even genetics. just from the, the whole talk radio kind of oh right from the 80s right, like, into the 90s and obviously through the evangelical sort of airwaves and stuff like that yeah no they definitely totally. i mean the the online digital media ecosystem that the right has managed to go and construct for itself is a pretty strong no no totally yeah no i, I hear you on that but no no keep going that's a curious way that because even the whole pastiche thing too i mean it's i mean that's whole McManus's sort of uh, framing and unpacking yes. of things as well, right? Which is fantastic in terms of how he's he's gone it. out and diagnosed and written about that so clearly that in terms of how postmodernism has gone out and infected, not infected, but I mean, informed, I guess, their way that they're operating now, even though it seems to be subconscious in a certain way. So that is pretty cool. Okay, totally. but do you, do you, do you, so do you think that 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 well? I'll let you finish. I mean, do you think that they they are winning in terms of how they managed to go out and build that, or do you think that the left has has built this, a strong sort of ecosystem itself? Or what do you think of the left in terms of how it reacts to that currently? Yeah, it, I guess it depends on definitions, right? So, like, 
like do I, I don't consider like the Joe Biden administration to be like on the left. <laughs> Obviously, <right? yeah. laughs> uh, I mean, like that's kind of a left perspective of like the Biden administration. A lot of people on the right absolutely think Biden administration is some kind of far left, you know, like bordering on Stalinist kind of thing. Um, whereas I, I think the left would be more like the Bernie Sanders AOC wing of the Democratic Party, right? Um, so. Yeah, it's 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 hard to know. Like, it's also an interesting question of how we measure, like, who's who's winning, or or are we well equipped to deal with these these new emergent um, ideas on the right? Right? Like, is it is it like if Trump wins in twenty twenty four? Obviously, that would mean like in some ways a new right or the the whole or the whole constellation of like right movements, um, traditional conservatism, neoliberalism, or or um, populist, you know, kind of the Steve Bannon you know, Breitbart kind of right-wing um, angle has, has won in terms of like who has, you know, who controls, you know, the White House and so forth and who has the bully pulpit of the presidency. But I do think that um, currently, I don't really think that the left is well-equipped to deal with it because I, I, I still really believe that Michael was right, that the left emphasizes structural and systemic factors. And right now with the rise of identity politics and social justice and so forth, right? That those kind of narratives can be very alienating to rural white male Christian conservative types uh, who, who have nowhere to go, else to go except for to their new right. So what I'm trying to bring to build bridges and, and create a more nuanced conversation where everyone's identity and values and concerns can be integrated and taken into consideration so no one feels alienated and then polarized into one camp right um and i so i don't think the left is doing that very well at scale or very consciously and without michael being a champion for that kind of approach on the left i am very concerned about the ability to really talk to the postmodern conservatives and to to uh militate against really toxic really destructive authoritarian even fascistic developments on the right. So yeah. I, it's, I'm really, uh, I think we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And I, cause you know, there is definitely an online left that is mm -hmm. present, right. That, that is much more online now than it's ever been. Like when I think about like kind of institutionally, I mean, Jacobin was never there till 2010, right. There is this whole sort of podcast ecosystem or the online left, um, and even Burgess kind of talked about that and even Matt to a certain extent, right, is that, you know, like, well, if it is just online an online left, right, and it is just sort of a sort of pastiche of podcasts and, you know, talking heads online, like, what, how does that go out and translate on the ground? But my, I think that's kind of funny is that, you know, like every time I'm talking to people on the left, well, they're all professors, right? They're all professors in universities and uh, the ones, the other professors, you know, that are in universities, they go and self-identify as liberals or classic liberals, you know, the Jonathan Haidt, Steve Pinkers of the world, right. um, you know, and we can go and say that they're, well, I mean, I wouldn't go and smear them completely to the right, you know, to me, they're, you know, they're standard liberals in a certain yeah. way. Uh, that have a, you know, they're very turned off to sort of, uh, you know, cancel culture and call out right. culture and that sort of whole sphere, right? But like, even for me to go and sit Ben Burgess down <laughs> with Jonathan Haidt, for example, who's had a big impact, you know, in, in, in the sort of integral movement as a whole, right? I mean, Wilbur has gone out and pegged him as a sort of par excellence sort of individual, uh, you know, in terms of... Uh, 
you know, or in terms of psychology, but in terms of his overall, you know, moral foundation theory is, is, is a real advancement in overall understanding of psychology. And even uh, Peterson, to a certain extent, um, I mean, I can't, I don't see Peterson as a very ant- attractive alternative. And even then, I mean, like how far to the right really is he, right? I mean, if we sit down with people from like, obviously rebel wisdom and some of these other sort of, you know, IDW type uh, communities that might be considered within this or integral sort of movement, but are not really to the complete left kind of like, uh, like uh, Matt, uh, Jeremy in a certain way. Like there is this, this fraction of the new, the, the IDW that can be go out and be framed as being on the left. Right. But not, you know, like, as far as Michael would be, obviously. Mm-hmm. So the question to me is, you know, like, you know, how, how, how far or, you know, can the liberals go out and be one within this sort of circle that Michael was going out and advocating for, right? Can it be flipped in that side? And I have a tough time, you know, figuring that out as well. So, I mean, that's kind of why I was curious to go out and kind of pick, pick your brains about that. Um, and, this is the other thing too, is that when I was sitting down with Matt and with Ben, I pressed them about the idea of the religious left, because I feel that they leave the spiritual and the religious side out completely where Michael was really willing to go out and embrace that. Right. I mean, he was bringing Cornell West on, I mean, he was bringing on, uh, you know, he was talking about openly about his Buddhist practices and he was obviously talking to people like Robert Wright, you know, that, you know, famously talks about Buddhism and he was willing to go out and talk about mm-hmm. Sam Harris as well. Right. That Sam Harris mm-hmm. is some sort of maybe closet Buddhist in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's being left out of the conversation now. Um, so that's kind of, I guess my pitch, to, uh, I want to go out and have you on to talk about because the right is co-opting the idea of what religion is, right. Although they're talking much more around Christianity in a certain way, w- what role do you think the religious left or even so-called spiritual but not religious aspect of of you know this sort of ecosystem and uh, sort of dimension or phenomenon that we're talking about can go and have an impact on the political type stuff. Like, where's your thinking on that currently? Has it shifted over the last little while? Yeah, it's another excellent question. So, in my opinion, as someone who grew up in the Buddhist temple, I can say that. I think it's very important, right? Because I, I think there's a kind of existential void that people feel and they feel alienated and disenchanted and uh, there's a, like a meaning crisis, right? And, and, and I think religion and spirituality, like, yeah, I agree with Michael that the right cannot have a monopoly on interior development and, and uh, spiritual narratives, right? Um, the left needs to provide that dimension as well as its, its kind of standard systemic structural uh, socioeconomic analysis and uh, emphasis, right? Um, but I don't think that I, I like, for example, like Buddhism. You know, integral theory. These are very particular forms of spirituality and, and very subtle phenomenological ways of interrogating your consciousness and deconstructing false notions of self to attain a more illuminated and diaphanous way of being. Uh, it's That's not appropriate for a lot of people, including, in my opinion, a lot of the guys being radicalized to the new right. Um, and, and, and this is just coming from personal conversations with a lot of people who I've talked to who belong even more extremist circles on the new right. But the all these young guys, right? I, I feel like what they need is even a little bit more basic than like 
Eastern philosophy, right? They need, they're looking for like kind of a Joe Rogan motivational speech, self-empowerment. <laughs> I want to feel more masculine and strong kind of a thing, right? It's, it's a little yeah. bit more like base. Uh, and I don't, I don't really know how, what the left could do to speak to that. I, I think I really, you know, the, this kind of like masculinity, femininity, you know, toxic femininity, me too, woke kind of thing. It, it's, it's really, really a core polarizing issue, right? Especially for working class guys. Cause I go to the yeah. gym in uh, where I live in Gresham, Oregon. And my gym is like super right wing, right? You pull into the parking lot, it's Trump, NRA, MAGA, <laughs> Blue Lives Matter, yeah. up the yin yang. And all these working class guys I talk to in the sauna, a lot of them are actually pretty progressive in terms of economics and supporting a uh, higher minimum wage and would probably vote for Bernie Sanders over anyone else, right? But they're they're so sick of the kind of woke culture and what they feel like is a, is an attack on their masculinity, which is a really yeah. core value to a lot of these guys, right? Is masculinity, whatever that means to them. Um, and they don't feel like that gets honored or and so they don't feel seen or respected as individuals or as men, right? And yeah. so there's a kind of a gender polarization dynamic that occurs uh, not even explicitly, like it's not even someone would have to go out and say like men suck and all masculinity is toxic masculinity, right? But even just the cultural ethos or aesthetic of the left feels like people's masculinity feels um, threatened and it, there's kind of an allergic flare up that occurs. And I've experienced mm -hmm. this a lot in some of my workshops on DEI and so forth that I've led for conservative working class communities. Um, so I feel like I, I, I've experienced it and can, and can kind of emotionally grok their perspective and where they're coming from. Um, so I think I always come back down to the same principles, which is talk to people on their own terms, translate it into a language and to values and through an aesthetic through which they can understand and resonate with. And um, yeah, talk, talk to them about things that are really meaningful to them in a way that's non-exclusive with left ideas, right? So we're not saying valorize masculinity and personal responsibility and personal empowerment over um, structural reforms, right? Mm. But how can both of those occur simultaneously uh, and actually harmonize with each other to make both of them better, healthier, and and um, yeah, just for better for society as a whole. So yeah. that's kind no, of but hard. And I think you're totally putting your finger on something. And it's beautifully said because, I mean, that's, I guess my interest as well, I guess, because of my background in religious studies, I've been fascinated with the whole kind of resurgence or revival of stoicism. Yes. Right? Because stoicism is a sort of, well, obviously it's, it's a Western sort of philosophy and it has deep roots within the sort of Western consciousness, but it's not, you know, it's not Christianity, right? And Christianity has got a lot of baggage. Like it's just got so much baggage, right? But if you are, you know, if you self-identify kind of like much more from a Western philosophical sort of a tradition and that you are a male, right? I mean, stoicism could be a natural way for you to go out and build up your so-called idea of what, you know, manhood is. Oh, totally. And for the, the, the strange thing is that, I mean, obviously I'm a bit older than you. Like for me in the 90s, stoicism was not really there. I mean, it was this whole talk around positive psychology and transpersonal psychology and humanistic psychology. And not that, you know, and even spirituality, right? I mean, you're spiritual, but not religious, you know, as a dude, that's not something that, you know, like I would go and talk to my buddies that I played ball with, 
right? It's something that I went out and, you know, read personally on my own, or it could be, I could go out and say, well, I'm talking about philosophy. But all of a sudden, when you start getting interested in terms of larger existential type questions, uh, so that day is a very difficult sort of conversation to go and be had. And Buddhism filled that space for a lot of people, for me personally, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, my Christian heritage was just all messed up. It's just so much baggage there and it's toxic. And, uh, you know, I'm not even sure Christianity for me personally can go and be fixed, uh, right? But obviously now because of my background in religious studies and, you know, discovering the whole idea around modern Buddhism and guys like Evan Thompson, right, that are talking about cognitive science and he's personally come out now and said that, you know, like, oh, why I'm not a Buddhist, right? And he self-identifies purely as a cognitive scientist. And, you know, he's more of my generation. He's obviously older than I am, but I mean, uh, I, I relate to his sort of dilemma there uh, in terms of figuring out, you know, like, well, how does Eastern philosophy and religion actually go and fit into, you know, to somebody like me who grew up Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, it was a huge, it's a huge question for me, you know, to go and try and make sense of that. But this is where Michael comes in again, right? Michael was talking about a very deep sort of rooted cosmopolitanism, right? And if you're taking a very cosmopolitan sort of worldview, then obviously there is this melting pot, Right. But it's also this 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 ongoing uh, dialectical sort of uh, of of melding and and transferring of knowledge that is crossing civilizations is also crossing, you know, uh, religious traditions and that they're transforming and they're always in the process of becoming. So somebody that's grounded in integral theory to me that's naturally so well that's that's fantastic. But for a lot of people, particularly the new right, I'm seeing that exactly what you're saying, and that's my biggest question to them is that well, you know, like what happens to, you know, religious diversity. Right. What happens to pluralism, cultural pluralism within the context of the United States or even within North America? Like, how are you guys going to go and deal with that? And they seem to be doubling down more and more like, right, close down the borders. Let's, so that part to me is just like unbelievably uh, frightening. Right. But I don't see the, the, the left kind of the way you've described it uh, right now is that, you know, like, what are they doing to go and deal with that? cultural, uh, uh, religious, and uh, uh, dimension that's being left out of the sort of secular, sort of socialist, you know, leftist, purely economic dimensions to things that are going on. Um, so, but what, what do you think of, uh, of, um, of stoicism? Where do you think that kind of fits into all this? Because, you know, obviously there's the stoa, there's rebel wisdom as well that are out there now in terms of communities that, that have, you know, started to go and advocate their own forms of, of discourse of, around the stuff that we're talking about. Where, where do you think stoicism fits into all this? And if it at all, or have you thought about it? I think stoicism could play a huge role in helping the culture move towards a healthier understanding of masculinity and, and yeah. personal development, especially for men. And obviously there's been a huge online resurgence and uh, interest in stoicism pop- popularized for better or for worse by guys like Tim Ferriss. And it's kind of being <laughs> yeah, like appropriated into this kind of like, I don't know what you call it. I just call it like success culture. Okay. Right? Like Jordan Peterson, 15 minutes, motivational speech will blow your mind. Right. Yeah. Exactly, and it's like yeah. this really cheesy, like, it, like kind of like music playing in the background. And, you know, it's like, uh, like the speech, like a, a football coach would give or something at halftime to his team who's down by 28 points. Right. So it's like, 
there's a real need for this. There's a real hunger for people to want to feel inspired and galvanized towards empowering positive action to make their lives better. Um, and I think stoicism can really uh, kind of give the scaffolding to channel those energies in the most healthy and productive direction, right? Because what I like about stoicism is it's it's not about um, trying to dominate or control other people, right? It's about trying to control yourself. So you you take that what could be a fascistic impulse and you turn it inwardly and say, how can I, you, through my stoic practice, right? You know, the stoics make a distinction between invulnerability and invincibility, right? The goal is not to become invulnerable because you're going to feel things. You're going to go through hard times, right? You're going to endure difficulties in life, like what the Buddha said, but you can become invincible to them, right? You can, you can bear them with a kind of stoic grit, and persevere with equanimity and tranquility and meet the, and confront these challenges head on. You can confront yourself and your own shadow and, and develop, cultivate this kind of strong, virtuous sensibility over time. And that, I think, gives a template for people to live a meaningful life in which they can really challenge themselves. This is another thing that Pearson really talks about. It's like really challenge, challenge yourself, you know, work hard at one thing, clean your room, challenge yourself, become comfortable with discomfort, push your boundaries. And that's the only way you're going to find meaning and grow as a person, right? Don't become seduced by this lifestyle of complacency. And, you know, kind of like mythologically, it's like the land of the Lotus eaters, right? Where you're trapped <laughs> um, in this kind of Peter Pan stunted development where you can never become a man. Right. Yeah. And so, so I have friends who um, have suffered from depression and low self-esteem and the whole cornucopia of modern psychopathologies that any young man would face. And Stoicism and Jordan Peterson uh, and, and kind of a combination of these things, right, really gave them meaning and a path forward. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think Stoicism um, has a lot of potential as a kind of philosophy to, to help with this. I'm wary of how it's appropriated in different context and by different people and to different yeah. aims right like there's hustle culture stoicism which is basically yeah. can become a very much a kind of neoliberal capitalist uh appropriation of stoic values in, in service of industry and uh capital accumulation that's not i'm not for that right but i think that it can be it can be done uh, leveraged for good if we're conscious of how we're uh using it yeah no, definitely. Yeah, no, no, I see that as well. Well, I mean, that's been kind of the, the whole critique as well of positive psychology, right? That positive psychology mm. goes out and enables neoliberalism. And the, the whole right. make, make mindfulness critique as well, right? Again, yes. The whole mindfulness movement and that type it's of stuff. Uh, so that, that's definitely an element that's there. And I mean, it, and it, it, it can be, and that's the impression I get, or like when I hang out with guys like McManus or Ben, uh, that are very much on the left, that are much more academically grounded in whatever, like, and they're taking much more of a Zizek sort of critique as well. Zizek has laid some pretty devastating critique against this sort of self-help, uh, you know, humanistic, positive psychology, sort of pop psychology sort of framework uh, right. that has infiltrated, new, uh, you know, neoliberalism to a certain extent and is you know is fueling the sort of corporate wellness world and stuff like that so it is something to go and be critiqued or i mean you know i'm very aware of that but i i'm not sure you know like and I, that's kind of the feel i get too about rebel wisdom in a certain way and obviously the stoa on a certain level right they're trying to go out and uh play that double-edged sword, right? And it, it's a difficult space to go out and be in, right? And you're right. I think uh, stoicism can go out and play a larger role because 
it's a philosophy. And if it is a philosophy, it can turn much more easily be converted into some sort of sort of uh, social movement. Uh, but any social movement can give, be hijacked for good or for bad and stuff like that. So that's definitely an interesting thing. Um, and that's why I really want to go and talk to you and obviously talk to, to Jeremy because you guys are much more engrossed in that world, have been following that whole uh, discourse much more closely than somebody like uh, like McManus or even like Ben, right? I mean, Ben is very much a socialist. He's, you know, a true and true uh, Bernie bro. Um, and, you know, and when I had him on the pod, that was really kind of my go-to since he was picking on Hitch, <laughs> right? And I wanted to go and get him to, to, to spill the beans about, you know, what's his take on religion and what does he think that the religious left can go and be revived or be used for, for political means, and personally, I think it can, you know, like my conversation with Jeremy was very much around that as well. Like, I feel like the, the religious left is, is an untapped sort of, of, mm. of capital, you know, to go and use a horrible word, but cultural sort of, uh, you know, legacy that's not being uh, mined right now by a lot of leftists. And if Absolutely. anything, I, I would love to, to go out and, and play a role in that in terms of going out and mining that a bit further. Because, I mean, Bam. obviously Dorothy Day, mm -hmm. uh, Cornell West, uh, mm -hmm. the whole kind of Catholic worker movement as well, which I know that you've Bay. personally you know, yep. impacted by and stuff like that can go out and have a huge, huge role to go out and play in, in all of this. And also the, the engaged Buddhist movement as well, right? Uh, I find a lot of the critique right now against Buddhism is very superficial. I mean, there could be, obviously, we can go and critique modern Buddhism, mm -hmm. you know, till, till uh, you know, till to death and beat it yeah. to death. But there is an element there that's been doing unbelievable, important work, particularly around the environment um, that is, is not being uh, properly, I think, <laughs> channeled right now in this kind of ongoing mudslinging political mudslinging that we're in um so yeah no no that's kind of that's interesting too that i want to go out and pick your brain about that and so so how do you go out and wrestle because obviously you grew up in hawaii you grew up within a buddhist family and you're very interested in christianity uh how do you in your own kind of personal identity and, and making sense of your own kind of religious worldview and stuff like that. How do you, how, how does that make sense to you? I guess, in terms of your, your Buddhist sort of, you know, roots and now living in the West and being deeply influenced by some aspects of, of Western sort of thought, particularly Christianity and Western philosophy in a way. And where does that kind of fit with you personally in terms of your own personal identity now within all this fucking crazy sort of culture war that we're in yeah well the first thing i do is i talk to you uh, <laughs> <laughs> um no it's a great question actually what's interesting is that my dad actually has two degrees two uh graduate degrees in um biblical studies and um theology okay so he um knows a lot about christianity and was a new testament scholar and knows a lot about religion in general and um, kind of identifies as an existentialist also and is a big fan of you know, Kierkegaard's Christian existentialism. Um, and so I've always had kind of that angle to buttress or supplement my, my Buddhist leanings. And I, my, my hero uh, theologically is Paul Tillich and the dynamics of faith. 
okay. and the courage yeah, to yeah. be. Yeah. He's my guy. And I find a lot of those ideas very constant with Buddhism. Uh, also, Simone Weil's work yeah. uh, and in her, her book called... Um, like I'm blanking on the, the name of her, her famous book, but you know, she talks about the void and there, there are different Buddhist motifs that to me kind of crop up. But yeah, I think so. there, there are several things that I've, I've learned over time to really appreciate about the Christian Western theological tradition that I didn't get from Eastern religion. Right. So I think one thing is its emphasis on the transcendent or God or divinity as, as being a transcendent entity or reality that's not imminently embodied, right? It's not imminent in the world, right? In the cycle of samsara, in the, in the kind of, um, you know, ecologically interconnected uh, uh, material reality, right? It's something beyond. So it has a kind of Platonist element to it. And I think mm. in my own spiritual life, like when is that orientation actually more helpful than an imminent or imminentalist one, right? And I think it in terms of, my own spiritual life, I've, I've realized that there are times that are so difficult that um, the trend to orienting myself towards a kind of transcendent force uh, actually helps more um, and then than simply trying to work with something purely, let's say, phenomenologically, right? And it gives me the kind of, you know, in kind of Tillich's language, the, the, the moral power of force and courage to surrender into the void, to surrender into the unknown, um, but sometimes it's, it's only one's devotion to a higher thing like God that enables me to do that, right? It, it, it's my devotion to a higher thing, my love to a higher thing that enables deeper phenomenological in investigation into sunyata or anatta, right? No self and emptiness. So I, fe I feel like those are very consonant and, and synergistic. Um, another thing too, to me, I think is the... Um, there's the transcendent element. I think, it, yeah, that, that's really helpful. The, I think the community element is also really important, right? Well, that, that's, of course, a big part of Buddhism. Obviously, there's the Sangha, but I think, you know, the role that the church or the parish plays and, and the role of um, how the, the, the community really helps you, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a, one of the beauties of religion that you can't get from like new age spirituality or, or retreats or yoga, right? Where the community is really in it together. And, and there's a very tightly knit sense of solidarity and support network that's engendered from that kind of community. I think the emphasis too on like virtue and character and morality, I think obviously the conversation around virtue and morality can take a very Procrustean antiquated pre-modern form, <laughs> uh, but it can, that, that can be kind of bigoted, right? But it can also be deeply meaningful, right? To reflect on our values, to reflect on our character, to, to reflect on, how virtue and character is cultivated. And this is to me one of the beauty of, of the axial age pre-modern traditions um, is the emphasis on virtue and on character and on the importance of moral restraint, right? The, the force that allows you to resist what Plato calls acrasia, right? Where you know you shouldn't do something, but you lack the moral courage or, or uh, strength to do it. And so how do we galvanize that strength? How do we cultivate that strength within us morally, right? How do we cultivate our characters? What does it mean to live a virtuous life? What does it mean to be a good person, treat others well? I think these are questions that are really important that really nourish people's souls uh, that we're not having on the left nearly enough that, that other traditions don't quite emphasize, at least not in the same, not with the same ethos or not with the same aesthetic, 
right? Uh, like there's all this talk nowadays of consciousness hacking. And I'm always like, well, what about character hacking, right? And my friend was like, well, that sounds boring, dude. Like who wants to like develop our character? Like that sounds so like, you know, old school, right? But I yeah. think there is something the old school that's really appealing to me. That's that's kind of where I'm most conservative is I, I really think to me character and, and, you know, becoming a person that's worthy of being respected is yeah. to me my highest value. And I find a lot of moral resonance with that in a lot of the Christian communities that I've interacted with, specifically in um, a Catholic worker group I, I interact with in Portland, who's really into Dorothy Day and Simone Weil and their Catholic worker vision, which is quite an eclectic hodgepodge of different political ideologies, right? There's even a kind of uh, Marxist angle, right? Emphasizing economic cooperatives and anti-capitalism, but also it contains a lot of re religious traditional conservatism in it too. And I think the the kind of integration of the unique blend of those otherwise ideologically dichotomous memes is really unique and actually really refreshing. So that's what kind of drives my interaction uh, with these groups and my continual learning uh, with them. Gotcha. No, and but would you say they're all to the right or could you go out and say some of them are actually to the left religiously or how would you uh so well it's it's hard to say though it's like <laughs> if you were for if you voted for bernie sanders but you were still pro-life what does that make you right like there's yeah. a lot of that kind of stuff which yeah i find to be really interesting to kind of juggle with yeah no, I mean, and that's the interesting moment that we're that I find ourselves in, right? It's this this political realignment, and its impact also not only on culture but also on religion. To me, is such a fascinating uh, topic, right? And uh, because I mean, obviously, I mean, like I'm very like my first, you know, politically, I'm not as astute as Ben Burgess or uh, you know Matt you know, in terms of their whole understanding of, you know, of, you know, the whole sort of political canon that they go out and draw upon, right? I mean, my background is much more in religious studies, but every time I, I see or I listen to them, I just feel that, you know, there's something going on cultural, on the cultural side and on the religious dimension that they're completely going out and leaving out. That Michael was just such, he had such a, an ability to go out and hone in on that so subtly and yet with humor and wit and and present it in such a an amazing way you know like the more i i go through some of his stuff i'm just always just so blown away about his work and what he's been able obviously to go and accomplish at such a young age um so i mean that's why i used him as a sort of launching pad to go out and you know for the the you know my pod in terms of integral facticity and to start talking about some of that stuff. So, you know, like, I'm so grateful for obviously, you know, like the conversations I've had now with you and, and with Jeremy uh, online and, and one to get me to go and reflect back on this, but also to go and have an opportunity to go and talk about it and share about it, because I think that's so important. I mean, it needs to be discussed out in the open and it needs to be fleshed out in terms of, you know, really what's going on there. Um, on so many levels so you know like i'm so thankful for for our conversations so far and obviously i, I want to go and have you have you back on and go and explore some you know some of these topics in more depth particularly i guess the the some of your roots i mean because i didn't realize you know how uh uh religiously like the religious roots i guess of your kind of family background kind of growing up i mean i had no idea that you know your dad had that much 
you know, sort of a training and, and theological background. And obviously your mom, obviously in terms of, you know, running her own temple and stuff like that, that's much more religious <laughs> than I've ever been exposed to. Right. I mean, me, it was all about books. Like it was, there was no church, there was no temple, you know, although I did spend some time up at the Montreal Zen center and I've gone on my own retreat type stuff, but I, I haven't uh, really gone out and lived or walked that walk one hundred percent. To me, it's been much more of an intellectual journey. But you know, like uh, obviously, I'd love to have you back on. So for us to go and explore some of that again, and uh, yeah. So I mean, that's that that's it for today. I mean, uh, obviously, I'll, I'll reach out and we'll go and continue the conversation and uh, take it from there, man. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Eric. This is fantastic. It's always great talking to you. And yeah, we barely scratched the surface. So no, exactly. There's a, there's a lot more to unpack about all of these subjects. So I look forward to yeah. next time. Exactly. Lovely. Cool.